Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you guys for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, various other platforms. If you're watching on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications so that you can be notified whenever I post new content here on this channel. If you want, you can also leave a comment with questions. Give me a thumbs up, share if this is useful for you. Also, don't forget to visit the newsletter, joshsummer.substack.com. I am keeping that up. That is a paid and free subscription. You have the option, and the paid subscription obviously goes to support video content like this. I just wanted to come and do a quick video. I am in the midst of a busy, busy season, but I couldn't resist to uh, I couldn't resist addressing some some important issues that have come up with regard to the uh, ongoing discussion uh, concerning the doctrine of divine simplicity. And uh, what I want to do today is I want to look at the claim that uh, the resourced version of so-called classical simplicity is an overextended version of the confessional doctrine. Or it's an overly extended version of the doctrine that everybody used to um, confess and profess. Uh, but but in light of this new season of resourcement that we've had over the last decade or so, uh, we have progressed beyond just the simple doctrine of simplicity um, to a perhaps philosophically bloated version. And so I wanted to address that. But before I do that, I was talking to some uh, some friends of mine, fellow pastors, and one of them, I would mention his name and I would credit him with this, but I, I, I haven't asked him if, if that would be okay. Um, so if you're listening to this person who I'm not uh, going to name, uh, let me know and I can, uh, I can credit that to you. But um, he had suggested, and I think it's a good suggestion, that we ought to just begin calling the classical doctrine of simplicity the confessional doctrine. So confessional simplicity, essentially. Uh, and confessional simplicity would just be the classical uh, doctrine of divine simplicity. And the reason for that is, is so that uh, we can come out and we can stake our claim to the confession and, and, and bring awareness to others who are perhaps just entering into this discussion or are not familiar with it, that this is indeed the confessional doctrine. This is the authorial intent that resides behind the letters that you read in your confession. And that's just unarguable from a historical standpoint. I think you can find variations in terms of nuance and the linguistic ways in which the doctrine of simplicity was was presented in the 17th century, but you're not going to find any substantial differences in terms of those who drafted the Reformed Confessions, Westminster, Savoy, Second London. And uh, if you read someone like Usher, who who contextualized the drafting of the Reformed Confession, especially the Westminster, the 39 articles in the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, you're going to find a run-of-the-mill classical doctrine of simplicity. You're going to find references to Thomas Aquinas. You're going to look in someone like Thomas uh, or, or Stephen Charnock, and you're going to find references to Thomas Aquinas. You're going to find another run-of-the-mill doctrine of simplicity there. So it's just, you're, if you look at all of the contemporary resource material that you have, which surrounds uh, the, the framing of the Reformed Confessions, all you're going to get is what amounts to a received doctrine of divine simplicity from 
the medieval uh, theologians, um, uh, classical realist theologians, scholastics, um, and and they're of course receiving uh, from from earlier medieval theologians such as Augustine and then the early church fathers, uh, the Nicene tradition and all of that. And um, uh, so Richard Muller has a very fine treatment on the on the on the Reformed Orthodox. Uh, doctrine of divine simplicity, and he notes some of the some of the nuances, but there's no substantial disagreement, and there's no there's there's nothing that would that would that would cast any doubt upon you know our contention that this is indeed the confessional the confessional doctrine, the confessional articulation of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, so for that reason, I think we should call it confessional simplicity. This is the confessional doctrine of divine simplicity. So we ask the question, is, is the confessional doctrine of divine simplicity, is confessional simplicity overextended? Uh, th that's been the qu claim uh, Dr. James White has, has made. He's alluded to that. He's, he's kind of gone with that as the way in which he's going to henceforth refer to the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's the, it's the extended, uh, kind, of the, the kind of the extended or deduced version of just the simple doctrine that everyone's been um, uh, proclaiming or confessing for many years. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and he'll talk about how, you know, back in the 1990s, uh, in early 2000s, this really wasn't a, a conversation being had, um, and and granted that's that's true, um, but really the 90s and the early 2000s should not be our chronological reference point in terms of what's historical, um, especially what's historical Reformed confessional theology. Uh, for that, we really need to go back to the timing of the confessions, the the, the what happened before, during, and immediately after. Um, in the High Reformed Orthodox period, uh, moving into the 18th century, there, and I think you know that survey from the 16th to the 18th, early early 18th century, you're going to find the classical doctrine of divine simplicity and its and its articulation in its fullness, um, and largely it was received from from Thomas Aquinas and others. It wasn't really augmented or changed. Um, from the medieval period to the Reformational and post-Reformational period. Um, that all changed, of course, with the Enlightenment and all that, but I'm not going to pain you with a, with a historical theological survey here. Uh, that could be done, but it would take several videos like this one to, to really pull that out. And then the question becomes, where do we start? Because we could start, you know, like year 1000, and we can make conf uh, connections from from that period of time on. We could we could start with someone like William of Ockham. We could start with the nominalists and all that, and and draw lines from there. But I'm not going to pain you with that. I think what will be good to do is is just ask the question: Is it true that the classical doctrine of of divine simplicity, as we've seen in Dr. James Dalzall, um, you know Richard Muller, uh, Dr. Craig Carter? Um, in these more recent uh, years, um, Dr. Matthew Barrett and his support of the doctrine of, of the classical doctrine of simplicity. Is, is this really just an overextended or overly philosophical um, runaway version of what has already been, what was being confessed in like the 90s and the early 2000s, what you would find in, in Dr. Samuel Waldron's uh, commentary or exposition of the 1689 and so on and so forth? Is that the case? Is this just a bloated, overly philosophized version. Uh, we, we have to remember what the doctrine of confessional simplicity states. It, actually, we have to, let's, let's go backwards. We have to remember what it's not, 
Um, and then we have to remember what it is. So the central claim, I know this has taken up a lot of uh, a conversational time uh, and, and internet minutes, um, but the central claim is not that all God's attributes meld into one thing in God. Okay, that's, that's you know, the, the, the reification of the attributes and then, and then to, to squish them together like a ball of Play-Doh and put them in God um, is, is not the central claim of divine simplicity. And in fact, that's a claim that's only meant to draw out the implication of the actual claim of the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's, it's only meant to really be illustrative of, of the, the doctrine of divine simplicity formally stated. And, and what is that? What is the central claim? So the central claim is not that all God's attributes are one in God, although I think we could say that, uh, and we need to explain what we mean by that. Um, but the central claim is God is not composed. And it's a very unqualified statement. Um, it's a very unqualified statement in the sense that we're, we're not saying that, you know, God's not composed of body parts, but he may be composed of, you know, this or that metaphysical attribute somewhere else. Um, and if you're not familiar with the, with the kinds of parts um, that could possibly be predicated of God, uh, you might want to go back and just check out the, uh, the the classical simplicity primer that I uh, that I've done, and that's the most recent video just before this one. Um, so the central claim is God is not composed, right? Um, that's the that's just the claim of divine simplicity. All that and that and that leads us to say certain things like all that is in God is God. Um, and and the reason we would want to say that all that is in God is God is that if all that is in God is not God, God would be dependent upon that which is not God, uh, that is, you know, these, these things that are not God are in God, and, and he's depending upon those things to be God, all right? So, all that is in God is God. If all that is in God is not God, God would be dependent upon that which is not him to be him, all right? So, we want to stay away from introducing or implicating any sort of contingency or dependency within the Godhead. All right. And that necessarily logically follows from the classical construal of divine simplicity. God is not composed all right, of either physical or metaphysical parts. So then you ask a question, you know, once you, once you state it formally and once you, once you explain what you mean by that, have we gotten to kind of like an overly philosophical or philosophically bloated doctrine of divine simplicity? Um, and I think at that point we need to make a careful distinction between what is actually overly philosophic and uh, and sophomoric, we might say, and that which just sounds strange to modern ears. And I think what we're running aground with here with the classical doctrine of divine simplicity is we are, we, because of the resourcement, we're being introduced to language and categories and modes of speaking, apophaticism and all of that that's not familiar to us, and it hasn't been familiar to us for some time. But if you go back to theologians that were working even, even right up to the, the Enlightenment, even during the Enlightenment, uh, if you go back to theologians even like Jonathan Edwards to some extent, but if you go back a little bit further to John Brown of Haddington and, and, and look at John Gill and all those guys, they nail the classical doctrine of simplicity. Something happened, therefore, from their point of time onward that caused that articulation of the doctrine of divine simplicity, which is everything that's being resourced and, and recapitulated now, and it's causing a lot of controversy. But something happened to make it controversial, because there was a time 
at which it, it really wasn't controversial, right? We, we, we weren't, Christians weren't debating whether or not there could be, you know, certain kinds of parts in God or, or, or whether or not there might be an actual real distinction of God uh, amongst his attributes in his divine essence or, or in addition to kind of accruing to his divine essence. That really wasn't, those weren't things that were on the, the debate radar among the Orthodox, all right, it just wasn't. So something has happened, you know, in, in the 18th century that has caused that shift to occur. And so I think a lot of what's going on here is it's not so much that the classical doctrine of simplicity is overly philosophic, um, it, it, but I think it is the case that these categories and this way of speaking about God has fallen out of vogue for the last, you know, 300 years or so. And as a result, we've become acclimated to uh, a post-Enlightenment world and a post-Enlightenment uh, set of vocabulary terms, concepts, way of thinking, way of seeing the world, etc. And that now, uh, as a result of being steeped in that context, when classical divine simplicity is 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 kind of refoisted upon us within that context, it's like it's like getting a bucket of, of ice cold water dumped on us, right? We're like, whoa, what is that? We we have no we have no idea what that is. We're just not we're not acclimated to it, right? It's like it's like we've we've been we've been living at you know two thousand foot elevation you know for two hundred years, and now we're going and we're being dropped on to the top of Mount Everest. Wow, elevation change, oxygen change, temperature change, everything change, right? Um, and, and that's kind of what's going on here, and it's causing some to say, "Whoa, this is this is over." Philosoph overly philosophical, and it's a bunch of baggage that we really don't need within our practical Christianity. Uh, um, and, and, and that, I think, that response, that knee-jerk response to the doctrine of divine simplicity, classically stated, is, is, is the result of being steeped in a context. And that's all of us. I'm not accepting myself from that, and, and, and no one else on, on our side should accept themselves from that either. The reality is, is we're we're all in this context together, um, and uh, and and this classical stuff is like having a cold bucket of water dumped on us. But the reality is, brothers, is that the reformers articulated doctrine of divine simplicity, right? Um, the post-reformed articulated a doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, you have the 18th century theologians like John Gill, Edwards, etc articulating this doctrine of divine simplicity. And sometime after that point, it really, 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 really falls out of vogue, right? And, 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 and different ways of thinking and speaking about God are introduced into the, into the, uh, into the kind of the, the universe of ideas. So that you have, now you have uh, Hume, skepticism, Kant trying to repair the skepticism, but the way he does it is he actually embraces the skepticism to some degree, um, and then you have Christians reacting to that by saying, well, we don't need to have any sort of philosophy. Uh, there is no good and necessary consequence. It's just what our Bible says. We cling to it, and that's it. And that's largely how Christians are, are reacting to it. And so they lose the power, really. Christianity loses the power to respond. They forfeit the power to respond to the the idealisms and the rationalisms and all of that. And then you, of course, of course have Hegel and and his pantheism and, and uh, you know, his, his idealism and all of that. So, um, and, and, that, and that confuses a bunch of things. And we've, we've grown up in that context. All of that has trickled down from the ivory tower into the, into the pews. 
And so we have to we have to realize that we are removed from this language, and this language is archaic to us, uh, and and that mm, that might elicit some responses, such as you know Dr. White's response. This is you know kind of a, a bloated or an extended you know doctrine of, of divine simplicity that really we don't have to jump on board with. Um, you know we're getting we're virtually getting uh, soaked with with you know. A, you know, two tons worth of, of ice water here with the classical language. We're not familiar with it all, but this used to be normal stuff back in the early 18th and, and 17th centuries. Um, so it's not that it's philosophically bloated. It's that this these are categories and words and ways of speaking about, about God that we're not used to. Um, but we, we have to realize that actually the, the the classical doctrine of divine simplicity is of divine simplicity is quite opposite from uh, from being a philosophically bloated concept. Um, the doctrine of divine simplicity aims at being predominantly remotive, negative, and if I could use the ten dollar word apophatic. That means it's a it's a negative um, it's a negative. It's a negative way of speaking about God. Simplicity is intended to remote or remove uh, or negate uh, composition in God. It removes complication and complexity and composition from God. It doesn't. It doesn't add anything to God, right? It, it's removing creaturely concepts and substances and parts. We might say creaturely. It's removing creature. It's intended to remove creatureliness from God. So it's negative. It's removing complexity from God. It's not adding complexity to God. So, so actually, in that sense, it's the exact opposite of a philosophically bloated doctrine. It's it's removing the baggage. It's not adding baggage to the divine substance. Um, it 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 doesn't it doesn't add anything substantially to the philosophical picture. Um, it only subtracts creaturely characteristics from the Godhead, if I could put it that way. Now, we shift over to the doctrine, the alternative, the doctrine of divine simplicity according to the detractors uh, of classical or confessional simplicity. And you realize that the detractors are often making exceptions for a kind of complexity in God, right? Whether that be real attributes in God, which are really distinct and really separate, or in, in case Scott Oliphant's case, uh, if you if you read reasons for for faith, you, you know you have this idea of of of, of the accrual of properties to the divine essence, uh, covenantal properties he calls them, um, and and so that's actually adding complexity to the picture. It's actually adding something to the philosophical picture, and so that's actually making an addition and an augmentation to the confessional doctrine. So if anything's extended, it's this newer version. It's this it's this newer version or this. This uh, this this doctrine of simplicity that 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 belongs to the detractors from classical simplicity, and, and that's because it tries to make room for different species of simplicity. Like this isn't the only way. There's another way of confessing God's simplicity, uh, and that would not have even been a, a, a conceivable thought um, in the 17th century, for example, prior to the Enlightenment. Um, the, the 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 assumption or the allegation even that there could be different kinds of simplicity, that there could be some kind of tertium quid would just be unthinkable during that period in time. So again, that's just something that needs to, 
uh, lead one to ask the question, what changed? What changed from their time period to ours? Um, and then also the, the, the doctrine of simplicity as it's stated and understood by, by the detractors. Property, usually there is some kind of an assertion or implication that, that, that properties or attributes either exist really and distinctly in the divine essence um, or they accrue to the divine essence, as I just mentioned, the whole idea of covenantal properties. And so, again, they're adding to the philosophical or theological picture. This is an extension. If there's an extension going on, it's here. Um, typically, detractors from the doctrine of classical or confessional simplicity try to add various distinguishing traits to the persons in the Trinity that would further distinguish them one from another beyond just the relations of origin or the, or the divine processions. Um, so that, that's also something that, that occurs uh, amongst detractors from the, 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 the uh, confessional doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, and uh, the detractors often, I'm not, and, and again, I'm, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to say that everybody do, does these things, but, but I'm just saying that this, these things often occur among the detractors from classical simplicity. Um, their views often deny analogical language in terms of God talk, uh, and it makes room for univicism. Um, and, and so if you, if you want to understand those categories more, uh, and get up to speed there again, refer back to that, um, uh, sim uh, simplicity primer, uh, that recent video that I've done and it's on my YouTube channel. You can check that out there. Um, and, and they'll, they'll either go one of two directions. They'll, they'll go for a full univicism, um, or they'll go for a partial univocism. Often it's called something like univocal core language. They're, this is what Dr. Jeffrey Johnson does in his, in his final chapter of, of the failure of natural theology is he, is he, is he makes room for, for there being a, 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 a point of sameness, a point of contact, he calls it in our language. And that's the only way we can, we can know God truly, uh, is if we preserve some kind of univocism there. Um, and so, you know, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about what classical simplicity does, which it 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 remotes, it removes, it negates complexity uh, from the divine essence. And here, what you're seeing in the doctrine, oftentimes amongst the detractors, is an addition to the doctrinal picture and an addition to the philosophical picture. Um, and 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 so there, I think I think you're actually getting more of an extension of the doctrine of divine simplicity in a very negative in a wrong negative I don't want to confuse anybody uh, in a in a in a wrong direction um, amongst the detractors because what they're trying to do is they're trying to actually make room for there being some kind of uh, univocal correspondence between our complex predication and the simple divine essence and that shows up in how they view the presence of the attributes or the properties within the divine essence is really distinct um, and then also it shows up in their Trinitarian theology where uh, they are looking for additional properties, whether that be authority and submission um, or gradation of power uh, or gradation of dignity or something of that sort uh, in or amongst the, the divine persons. So the con it's the contemporary denial of classical simplicity that actually represents, in my estimation, that actually represents the overextension of the confessional doctrine in a negative direction, in a bad direction. It 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 actually uh, changes the confessional doctrine as it's stated in chapter two point one, 
into a wax nose that can just be formed and interpreted any, any way one would want to do so. Instead of looking at the authorial intent of the statement and, and understanding it according to the authorial intent, the confessional doctrine removes composition in God altogether. Um, although, because of our limitations, culturally, you know, we, we just talked about the philosophical timeline and how you know, we, we, we've come up in these recent days in, in, in a different milieu than those who lived during the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, because of those kinds of limitations, I mean, obviously, when you introduce a new doctrine, uh, or what's new to us, uh, the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, you have to explain it. It's almost like you have to, we have to be retaught. We have to be retaught, reprogrammed to think in terms of those who were writing about this stuff in the 17th century. And, and early 18th century. Um, and because of that, we have to do a lot of work explaining what the classical doctrine of divine simplicity entails, and that makes it appear as if this is a philosophically bloated project, when really, when you look at the claim just by itself, it's removing complexity from God, um, it, it's taking away creatureliness from God, which should be intuitive to the Christian to take away creatureliness, given the creator-creature distinction, um, and it's not adding anything to the philosophical picture substantially. It's just trying to get back to the thought process of and the doctrinal uh, understanding of of our Baptist. I'm a Baptist, so I'll say our Baptist forerunners um, and uh, our theological forerunners. We'll say um, and and trying to understand, you know, the classical doctrine. And and when that happens again, it's like getting hit with a bucket of of ice cold water. And so that makes it seem as if you know. Uh, this is this is extending the doctrine of simplicity beyond what it was really intended to do, when really it's just going back to the to the actual understanding of it, um, and and because of our assumptions that we make, uh, and because of the context we've been brought up in, that requires some retraining, right? It requires homework on our part to to uh, to parse the issues and to grow in our knowledge of them. Um, but, but when you just look at the doctrine by itself, the doctrine of classical or confessional simplicity, it's remoting from God. It's negating, you know, uh, manifold substances. It's negating creaturely concepts and attributes and properties from the divine essence, because none of that composition cannot be in God, lest God be dependent on um, a sum of his wholeness to be whole. Uh, or lest God be dependent on something more basic than he himself is. Um, the contemporary augmentation and addition to the doctrine of divine simplicity makes room for some kind of addition in God, whether it's like the divine essence plus attributes. Uh, the attributes are not identified with the divine essence, right? So it's the divine essence plus some attributes, uh, or attributes really and truly existent and distinct in the divine essence, which would seem to... Uh, you know, introduce all sorts of division and complexity and partition within the divine essence as well. So um, if you're not looking at an outright denial of simplicity, you're looking at certainly, uh, at the very least, you're looking at a, at a philosophically bloated version of it. Um, by the time you parse all those issues and what you mean by really or truly distinct properties or attributes in God or in addition to God, etc., Rather than that, uh, confessional those who those who subscribe to the confessional doctrine of divine simplicity, classical the classical doctrine of divine simplicity, we say that 
attributes in our language and, and in the language that Scripture, you know, speaks to us in, attributes are conceptual, right? And, and uh, they, they, they constitute, attributes essentially constitute analogical creaturely predication about the one undivided divine essence which subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in other words, the reason the divine, and you can look back in, in my previous episode on the, on the primer uh, of classical simplicity, the reason the, the attributes are manifold right is 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 because they are is because that is god's revelation to creatures and god is speaking to creatures in an accommodated way and we can only speak in terms of predication subject plus predicate and in god there's no subject plus predicate really he's simple and so we have to understand the attributes to be uh to be god's revelation to us um which analogically uh, reveals something true about God, um, but th- it's not communicating to us that there are real things in God that represent actual different aspects or pieces of the divine essence. There's uh, the, the, the attributes are ways in which we understand and speak about and think about the one divine essence, and we're limited to understand in terms of subject plus predicate because we are creatures of process and change, and we're constantly changing, right, in, in, in some ways. And so, and so that's how we have to know God. We're limited to knowing God in creaturely ways. And so God reveals himself um, through his revelation, which speaks to us in a creaturely mode. Uh, and we call that analogical language or analogical predication. So hopefully this was helpful to kind of examine the claim that, you know, the classical doctrine of divine simplicity or confessional simplicity is uh, a philosophically bloated version. I don't think it is at all. Um, Actually, you know, the more I think about it, the, the more I think I realize that this is the doctrine of divine simplicity is almost too easy for us uh, in a sense. Um, you think about like a math whiz, you know, like a, a, a someone who's great at calculus or something. They they could be hit with like a, a more elementary uh, uh, algebraic equation, and they could get stumped, right? Because they're just not they're they're just not used to thinking in those terms anymore. They've moved beyond that. And they're dealing with different kinds of maths, and so um, uh, they've almost outlearned, right, to some extent. Um, maybe a mathematician is a bad uh, example, but but you get the you get the picture. Um, and, 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 um, and, and maybe that's okay for mathematicians, but I think what we've done in our, in our current situation and over the last 250 years or so is, is we, we have broken up the metaphysical picture um, and it's been complicated with idealism, rationalism, and, and we cannot pretend that we're exempt from making those kinds of bad assumptions and adopting those within our own lives and lifestyles. I mean, um, this is inevitable, actually, when we grow up in, in the context. It's inevitable that we, that we have it stuck to us, as it were. And so um, it takes work to then unlearn that, right? And so uh, as a result, um, you know, that which was seen as, as something that was simple. I mean, what do you, you know, talk about the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's remoting complexity from God. I mean, you can't get more simple than that when you think about what the doctrine of divine simplicity actually, how it functions in our theology. 
Uh, and yet it's very hard for us to, to understand and grasp. And part of that, a, a, a big part of that, is because of the uh, philosophical uh, uh, context in which we live. And, 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 and how the metaphysical or the philosophical picture has been shattered into a million different pieces in terms of methodology, in terms of, you know, the actual studies of different areas of philosophy in themselves, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. And um, now, you know, we, we hear about this idea that, the, you know, the universe of ideas or the world of ideas. And it's just kind of like the picture you get is like it's just this world and there are a bunch of ideas that glob onto, you know, that, you know, the, the ideas that we like are the ideas that went out and we glob onto those things. And and so we live in a world of confusion and we live in a world of 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 over complexity. And as a result, something like the classical doctrine of divine simplicity has to be retaught to us because we're like, how do we, how do we do this? It's almost like considering the laws of logic. Laws of logic are actually very simple, um, but we're not used to examining those things, right? We're not used to talking about the law of non-contradiction and actually what, what it means to apply that in our own thought and speaking. We do it we do it, uh, uh, you know, uh, inadvertently. Obviously, we're 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 forced to, you know, um, uh, to bow down, to cow down to those laws of logic um, in, in most cases. But when you actually talk about the laws of logic and you and you and you and you examine what it's like to apply the laws of logic to your thought or or your expressions, your linguistic expressions, people just aren't used to. We're, we're just generally not used to as a society, talking about those things. And it's confusing, even though it should be very simple. Um, and, and that's because of the philosophical milieu that we now live in. And we can thank, uh, in large part, the Enlightenment for that. Um, but God had his purpose in providence uh, for, for ordaining those things and, and, and governing those things to occur. And, um, and we've brought, been brought to this point where now uh, there's been an introduction of classical simplicity, classical metaphysics, and, and, and a retreat, not a retreat, but a return back to the old ways. And I think it's a great opportunity now to, to relearn and reappropriate those old ways and get back to the, the landmarks of our forefathers, not cast them away, but to get back to them. And of course, that's going to uh, to take some homework by God's grace. So if this was helpful, please uh, please like, share, subscribe. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, click that red, red button and the bell for continued notifications. Don't forget to check out the newsletter, joshsummer.substack.com. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.